Hello, everyone. Welcome to this first interstate episode of the um, Superhero Ethics Podcast. I say that because I am Matthew, your host. I am coming to you today from my new home in Minnesota, and I'm joined today on the line by Jacob in his normal home of Wisconsin. Jacob, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing fine. Of course, the weather between Wisconsin and Minnesota is so radically different that I don't know <laughs> how you're dealing with, with such an abrupt change in your life. Um, it's sort of a peek behind the curtain for our listeners. Uh, Matthew and I were always recording remote from each other, even when we live, what, like literally eight minutes away from each other? Pretty much, yeah. And now that distance has, uh, has increased significantly, but it's not going to be much of a change, except Matthew doesn't have to record from inside of a tiny boxed-in area now for audio yeah, quality. Yeah, my old apartment was a great, great place to live, but had a lot of crazy nooks and crannies in the um, walls and uh, ceiling, which was not the best for acoustics. So I'm trying out a new location. You all can write in and tell us just how terrible this sounds, and we will keep improving it. Um, I'm coming from a location that is also surrounded by cardboard boxes. We are almost done with unpacking. Um, ten minutes ago, I realized that I didn't know what box the headphones for my um, recording were, uh, but we've gotten all that taken care of, and we're, we're good to go. Um, and today, uh, we, we can talk for a while about my moving problems, but much more exciting. Today, we're talking about uh, not an MCU movie, but I think in many ways, one of the best Marvel movies I have seen in a very long time. Um, and that's the um, Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, we've had two new Spider-Man movies in the last year or so. The new Tom Holland one, which um, I have seen. I think, Jacob, you have not, correct? That is correct. Okay, so we won't be mentioning that one. Um, but I, I will say I, I have really enjoyed the Tom Holland movies. But for me, at least, this was so far flat out my favorite Spider-Man portrayal I've ever seen. Um, and I'm really excited to, to dive into it. We're going to talk somewhat about the movie itself and sort of the making of the movie and why that's pretty awesome, but also, and some of the ethical questions around that, but also some of the ethical questions around um, the stuff that happens in the movie itself. So, Jacob, let me just start. What did you think of this movie? I loved it to pieces. Um, yeah. Both the, so the, the, the generalized plotline, the focus of the Miles Morales character and his journey in the movie, I found very compelling um, and very relatable. And I loved what they did with some of the some of the other characters, some of the other iterations of Spider-Man. Uh, when we got our Doc Ock reveal, and I was like, "Oh, sweet! I'm really yeah. glad they're doing this." Um, up to and then, obviously, like th- there was a good balance between fun humor bits, like there's literally a pig. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I should say right now, um, this should be assumed for everything we do, but major spoiler warnings. We're about to spoil everything about Into the Spider-Verse, as well as pretty much every other Spider-Man property that's ever been shown. Mm-hmm. Continue. So, so, yeah. So, obviously, there's like an actual factual Looney Tunes character, as far as you can tell, right? But also, there's, you know, some very serious uh, issues going on up to and including what happened with uh, with Miles' uncle, right? Like, that reveal was also very poignant. And, like, the journey of, of Miles as a hero, like, yeah. I loved this movie a lot. I had very few problems with it. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I thought the, um, first of all, just as a New Yorker... Um, this is one of the most New Yorker movies I have ever seen. Um, 
certainly one of the most New Yorker movies not made by Woody Allen. And that's a, a whole other story that, you know, uh, <laughs> feelings on Woody Allen is, is a subject we're going to get into on a later podcast. But this also is about a very different part of New York, obviously. It's about the New York of color. It's about the New York of Brooklyn. And, um, you know, especially given how much Peter Parker is very much a Queens character. And as much as I've loved some of the other... um. Uh, Spider-Man movies, they they always they never quite felt as much like they felt kind of like the the movie cinema you know dream of New York like you know kind of like the the TV show Friends you know my 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 actual friends in New York City would always roll their eyes like that that's cute that has nothing to do with actual life in New York City. This movie felt more like New York City than anything I'd ever seen. Um, I really loved that. I really loved the characters. I loved the. The way that they balanced the hu- as you just said, the humor and the seriousness. I mean, there was some real like tear-evoking moments, as well as just some of the funniest things I've seen. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that there's a talking pig who's basically a, um, a Looney Tunes character, and at one point he actually quotes Looney Tunes, and then someone else says, "You know, can we say that without getting sued?" <laughs> just like <laughs> little fourth wall yep. breaks like that were yep. so good. Um, the thing where the thing that I was really impressed by, and I I kept trying to figure out a way to make this an ethical question. It's really not, but I think it's worth commenting on. As listeners who've heard me and Jacob talk before, I am in general not a big animation guy. Um, My brain doesn't register it very well. I really liked Korra. I really liked liked Avatar and a couple other things. Mostly I'm not an animation guy. In this, the animation blew me away, especially in the way that they used animation to to, to do a... It wasn't just we're going to draw a picture of what would appear on the screen. They used animation to make the most a comic book appearing on screen movie I've ever seen. Yeah, they did things in this that um, the only other film I've really seen do well was Sin City. And mm. that's that's a bar, right? Like, not that Sin City is a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in fact, there's many issues you could take with it. Uh, most of them are with the source material itself. But, but... Uh, the framing, literally the framing part, is so good when you do it well, and so hackneyed and, and unnecessary when you don't. And yeah. it was just, it was perfect for this. It felt like I was reading a comic book that moved around. And just, there were so many moments where, like, the thought bubbles would appear. Um, <laughs> there was what I was not the first to, to point this out. There was an article I read about, about this that pointed this out, but I want to repeat it. Um, and I can't remember the article, but it, it mentions a moment when the two Peters are in, or no, Peter and Miles are in the laboratory and they're running to get away. And he'd already grabbed a bagel and he throws it at someone's head and it hits the person in the head. And just the word bagel appears as like the sound effect. <laughs> yeah. and I just thought that was, that uh, one moment was so good. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. You've got, um, in addition, the, I lost what I was going to say. Uh, the I was, we were talking about the visual style. We we're talking about the animation style and and the comic book style and the comic book feel. Um. Oh yes. Uh, the fact that they decided that there wasn't going to be like all of the Spider Men got bit by a radioactive spider if they were going to be bit by a spider. Uh-huh. And I was like, thank you for just completely throwing out the Tobey Maguire uh <laughs> version where it's now a 
biologically, genetically engineered spider. Oh, God, yeah. I'd even and, I'd forgotten about yep, that. So. Yep, because that was the hot science then, right? Right. Uh, and so to sort of like return it to its roots, uh, I really appreciated the idea that we were sort of being like, no, 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 this is Spider-Man. This is, this is the origin. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I... I... Part of what I liked so much, and and we'll get into this more when we get into the kind of meta-ness of it, is, you know, obviously this is a this is a very new Spider-Man. The Miles Morales character is, I believe, less than ten years old. It, it's quite new, and I will later actually I, I learned recently about the origin story of this character, like as a, as as a, a, appearing in comics, not in the story origin story, because um, it's pretty awesome. And and I loved that they were both doing so much to say. You know, let's take Spider-Man out of the white boy from Queens and put it into a people of color story and really make it such a new dynamic kind of world that we've never seen, but also pay so much homage and so much love to the roots of Spider-Man. Um, you know, like, you could have done this in a way that the, the, the original Spider-Man who he meets, the Christopher Pine character, just appeared as a buffoon and that Miles was clearly... And, and, the fact that his character was presented so lovingly and yeah, kind of ridiculous with his Christmas album and all that, mm-hmm. but, but it, that wasn't done to mock him. It was done in, in, as sort of loving send up humor instead of mockery. And, and then to have that and then to have all these other people from the spider verse drawn in, um, and, and just the way that they were animated being so in, like, I, I don't understand art much. My, my partner does, but she was telling me about how like the, the character who is, you know, basically anime girl with a Spider-Man, ro- with a Spider-Robot, like, she's animated in a very anime style, and the the noir character is very much done in kind of that, that sort of old 1930s comic style, and I just, mm-hmm. the way they used the visuality of it to, to tell the story and to pay homage to all that just blew me away. Yeah, getting into the, um, Getting into the character himself, because uh, as as uh, Rob and Steve and I discussed in the Roshar episode when we were talking about the Knights Radium, we were talking about Spider Man as like one of the one of the best examples of a champion of the people of the the protector of the little guy, care about the little guy kind of hero. Right. There's something very powerful with putting that that ideology, building that kind of hero, into and and having the hero be a person of color having that person be uh, the champion of the little guy, right? The person who's watching out for for your everyday people on the street. I think right. that's great, rather than it being... Because otherwise you do, unfortunately, get into the, the little bit of the white savior trope, right? It's unavoidable. That, that you know, That's a good point that I hadn't even thought of, and I think that's a really important one. Um, and... I just there was there's so much about especially because when like it's funny when I keep thinking about Miles, you know, it it is difficult to talk about in a way because he is a character and this is a story that a little bit defies expectations. You know, he um and again this feels very New York to me. Um you know, in in part because he is a character who is mixed race. He is black and latino. And his he's clearly a fusion of those two in a way that doesn't there isn't tension, but just the the dynamic between his parents, for example, where one parent is his father is speaking to him constantly in, in English, and the other parent, his mother, is speaking to him often in Spanish. Um, and I, I it, it again, it, one of the things that I think of most when I think about growing up in New York is is how much the, the blending of those things that there wasn't a clear like black community versus Latino community, but but really a, a great intermingling in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, the the way that that 
this this movie takes that idea and melds it with the idea of the savior of the people. I really loved that, and this, this is an issue we we're going to get into, especially with the way that towards the end they really harp on the idea of um, that everyone can be Spider Man. Um, what what was your kind of take on that? Because I I it sort of developed first as just you know Peter telling Miles he can be Spider Man, but then more and more. You know, both with Mary Jane's speech at the funeral and some other scenes, they seem to really playing out this idea that kind of uh, the Spider-Man thing can be anybody. What what was your what was your take on how they handled that? I mean, it remi- I, well, obviously, I, I really liked it. Uh, it was a it's a case where it's similar to the the whole being super uh, project idea, right? Where it's this idea that um, all it really takes is somebody who's willing to to take the stand and make the right choices and and try to make a difference right mm-hmm. and that's a very powerful message it, it's very uplifting um obviously uh in we live in a world where it's not always easy or even plausible to do but i do still like the message i like the idea that and the sort of optimistic ideological i uh principle that you know anybody can anybody you know, given the right impetus, can do this, right? And rather than saying, "Well, it has to be specifically you," and, and falling into the the destiny and the uh, and, and fate uh, type of stories you sometimes get with heroes, where it's like, "Well, it can only be Batman, it can only be Bruce Wayne." And, and let's actually get into that because I know that was an issue you wanted to talk about. Was getting into some kind of the ethical and moral questions here. You know, you have a movie here in which, on the one hand, all of what you just said is correct, but on the other. It does seem at least that it starts out going in the very opposite direction, where in every universe, either there, Peter, there's a Peter Parker himself who is becomes Spider-Man, or Peter Parker's best friend in the in the case of Gwen, uh, Gwen Stacy, or um, you know Peter Parker doesn't quite quite connect as much with with the um, uh, noir or the pig, but like but but certainly the idea that there has to be some version of a Spider-Man in all these universes. How do you think that? How do you think they dealt with that issue? Because as you said, I think th- there can be something problematic sometimes about the idea of, you know, well, all these people have to be the same, and no matter what universe it is. Well, I think there's a, there was sort of an easing the audience into the idea, right? We we started out by getting an alternate Peter Parker, um, and turns out we had already seen a Gwen Stacy, right? But um, but we didn't know. Uh, necessarily at the time, the audience wasn't explicitly told that's what was, or rather, we knew she was Gwen, right? right. Uh, but we didn't n- know that she was actually already powered from a from an alternate universe. Um, and then, sort of, as we got some of these other characters, like the the not, none of uh, Spider Pig, the Noir Spider Man, or the uh, Spider, what did they call her? The Supply. The the one the, the anime girl I don't right, actually I think she was Spider Girl I'll, I'll look it up actually was Spider Girl right like who's got uh the ghost of her father and a spider robot or something like it was <laughs> it was a cool story that they told really really fast for her origin but like so they they started with just like oh it's Peter Parker and then very quickly like when we got more Spider Man from more alternate universes the only thing that remained constant was that there was a Spider Man but not. But it wasn't always Peter Parker. She right? is Penny Parker. So Penny they're Parker. It, it, obviously right. a pretty similar name. Right. Um, and part of this, like, you could wave away as it being a, like, you know, 
the, the dimensions that are closer to this particular world line are going to have more similarities than ones farther away, and so those are the ones that are going to get sucked in first. You could you could sort of massage this to make sense why they're similar, but it's not always the same. It's not the person. It's not an iteration of that person in a different timeline always who becomes uh, Spider-Man, but somebody becomes Spider-Man, and that kind of plays into this whole anybody can be Spider-Man idea right right and so it sort of reinforced that statement when especially in the way that they, they they developed even just from the very beginning the small differences like even if you take we we do meet two full-on peter parker characters and even those two are presented as somewhat different one is that they are at different ages two is that they have radically different relationships with mary jane um and, and the other, and this was such a small moment, and it, it was a kind of like blink and you miss it thing. But on the one hand, we established that you know that the prime universe is Spider-Man. I think is pretty clearly supposed to be Christian, the way most of them are often presented as. I, I generally get a kind of an Italian idea, at least from the Aunt May. Um, although that, that's more just Marissa Tomei in the <laughs> most recent movie, so, so disregard mm-hmm. that. But but certainly, you know, he's singing these Christmas songs and all this kind of stuff. And then Peter Parker from the first alternate universe is Jewish. And the only reason I, I – a lot of people are wondering how in the world I, I know that or I'm saying that is in the very quick origin story when they mention his wedding to Mary Jane, they show him smashing a glass at the wedding, which is a very, very specifically Jewish thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just loved that because I thought it was such an interesting like – Okay, yeah, by by some weird trick of fate, there is a Peter Parker in both these universes, and they don't become Spider-Man, but they're actually completely different people. Um, and I thought that was an interesting way of kind of taking the stuff that, that a lot of these books had used to do, of saying, okay, in all these alternate universes, most things are going to be exactly the same, and saying, okay, we're, we're locked into that somewhat, but let's play with it. Let's change it around some. Yeah. And I do really appreciate uh the idea of people who are from an alternate dimension or who are you know have the same name and most of the same uh superhero origin story still aren't anywhere near the same people they react to things differently they are at different either they're at different points of their lives or they had different life experiences um this was one of the things i'm hoping they're not going to do with uh uh and with a MCU post end game, right? Mm. Where um, I'm really you and I talked about this. I think during our end game conversation, right? Where I'm, I think they can't possibly do the thing where uh, they do like fifty first dates with Gamora and Peter Quill. Um, yeah. But I'm concerned that they <laughs> might because there is this idea that like even though Gamora has now had a completely different life experience uh, than the Gamora that Peter knew. There's this possible idea that, like, oh, no, they're the same people and, like, destiny, fate, blah, 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 blah. It's such a load of garbage, Um, which is why I really like that people with the same name, with similar experiences, but not the exact same experiences, don't end up being the same people. Yeah. Uh, And that is – that's very important to me just from a, like, storytelling perspective that we're not locking into this idea that, well, if I clone you – the clone's going to be exactly like you because all that matters is is very uh, deterministic thing. Like all that matters is your is your 
compositional makeup and oh, yeah. nothing in your environment matters at all and that's just a load of hooey. This, uh, this is a, kind of going on from a very different direction, but it, it's a connection I've made before, and again, this isn't really a spoiler because it's, it's very early established. One of the things that I like so much about the Clone Wars TV show uh, about in the Star Wars universe is it explores exactly this idea that you have a you know an entire army made up entirely of clones, but that as they grow and develop, you know, some of them were in this battle and some of them were in that battle, and that creates fundamental differences. You know, one mm-hmm. tripped over a rock and the other didn't trip over a rock, and that makes them different. You know, like just yep. really highlighting it. Um, the other thing that I was thinking of as you talked, and I hadn't really thought about this before, but the more I think about it, the more I think it, it definitely happened, and I think it must have been intentional is, you know, as always happens, because the internet is really dumb, whenever you get a character that has traditionally been a straight white cis man, and then let that character or a version of that character be played by anything that isn't all of that, you're always going to get a huge bunch of hate and a huge bunch of idiots. And it felt like one of the things that this movie... In some ways, if this movie had been you know, six different exactly-looking Peter Parkers from different universes all confronting Miles, that would have felt really weird because I think it would have it would have highlighted even more the otherness of Miles. Yep. But instead, what they did was to say, yes, Spider-Man is often Peter Parker, but he's also been all of these other things. We've had women Spider-People. We've had black-and-white Spider-People. We've had Spider-Pigs. We've had, you know, all of these things. Into which saying... And so isn't it kind of actually ridiculous that we've never had a black or a Latino spider person, but that actually it isn't that different to have, you know, a new kind of spider person. I, I loved that because I thought it really it highlighted the idea that the Spider-Verse is much more diverse than the people who just think of it as, you know, all Peter Parkers and then now the, his, you know, person of color sidekick or whatever. It's the Spider-Verse is Spy-Diverse. Oh, God. <laughs> You can fire me anytime you want, Matthew. Uh, uh, anybody want to be a new host? I'm certainly not firing you until I have you can, that. You can send a message to uh, at... Oh, goodness. I don't know your Twitter handle off the top of my head. Superhero <laughs> Ethicist? It is Caped Ethicist. Caped Ethicist. Oh, goodness. Now now everybody knows how bad I am at social media. Uh, See, here's the thing, though. I, I am going to keep you on this podcast for many reasons. I think you're a very helpful part of the podcast, despite your puns. But also, I care deeply about your wife, and I'm not going to subject her to you having to have all these opinions without any other outlet for them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... So other, let, let's actually just talk a little bit more about that idea of representation, because um, – uh, one of the, I think another reason why I liked this so much is that in a lot of ways this very much reminded me of Black Panther and Luke Cage in that it wasn't just that you had a person of color who was the star. It was that the entire world felt so much – like the music was so much influenced by not just rap but like rap and hip-hop and Latino – uh, music and reggaeton and, and, and different things like that, and that the entire world felt so – honestly, felt very different than the world that I, as a person of uh, – as a white person, inhabit. Um, what, did you get that same kind of thought? Like, did it ri- remind you at all in that regard of, like, a Black Panther or a Luke Cage? Um, it reminded me more of Luke Cage only insofar as uh, the, the environment and a little bit the music, but mostly the environment that we're dealing with uh, an area where – you know, you've got a much more ethnically diverse community than we're seeing in 
well, quite frankly, many other television shows even today. Um, and I, you know, again, really appreciate that. Uh, obviously, like my experience growing up is growing up in small town, uh, incredibly Caucasian America is nothing like that. So I really like seeing things like that. And but I have no way of knowing if they're authentic. That's yeah. the like, right? So I'm seeing it. And I'm like, oh, this is cool and different. I like what they're doing here. Um, is this good or is this somebody interpreting things incorrectly? Like, I don't know. Yeah. And like I said, it, it, it felt a lot to me like the New York that I knew, but I was always like, as a white person, I spent a lot of time in parts of New York where as a white person, I was the minority, but so I could relate to some of it, but certainly my experience as a white, you know, there's still elements to this experience that I have no concept of. And I, I, I have, heard from many other commentators um, who I greatly respect, who are people of color, how authentic this movie rang to them, but I think you make a good point that that's not, that, that one element is not something you and I can, can comment on with too much um, uh, too much accuracy. Um, but that it's, again, I think it's important, and, and I would say, especially anyone listening to us, you know, take our thoughts in, but but um, really seek out some of the voices of people of color talking about this movie as well, because I think there's some really great perspectives they have uh, that we can't bring. Um did you have any other things about kind of the meta-ness of the, the movie in terms of it being made and, and, and the stuff about uh, that we're talking about before we wanted to jump into the, the, the questions from the movie itself? I mean, in general, when I, when I first knew the movie was coming out and it was a Marvel Universe movie but wasn't going to be part of the mainline MCU and was this animated feature, I was like, well, this is weird that it's going to theaters. There have been many, uh, like... Iron Man or Avengers or Thor animated features that didn't go to theaters. It just went directly to video. And I thought to myself, well, who, who is this for? Right. Right. And then after I saw the movie, I went, oh, this is for literally everybody. Uh, so it was kind of refreshing. And I almost like part of me really wants now that we've done at least something in the mainline MCU to show that, uh, you can create branching timelines. Yeah. I would like this. I would actually like this to be folded into the MCU proper. I would love to see Miles show up in like some of the new television shows that uh, that are going to be on Disney Plus or whatever. That would be pretty great, and I'm I'm fairly certain that very briefly, but I believe we have met Miles Morales in a Spider-Man movie in the MCU at this point. Oh. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't even think I'm spoiling anything. Cause I, I. I think that was like a very brief reference in the um, in the last movie, the Homecoming one. Um, my memory may be off here, or may even be that it was something even like that they mentioned. Um, nope. Your your memory is not off. Uh. Yep. And there's. Yep. Nope. Sorry. Just decided to look that up. Yeah. Awesome. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so what what is it what is that what, what you, did you see exactly what it is? Uh so not only was there a subtle reference in Homecoming, um uh-huh. there was a deleted scene from Homecoming that was far more explicit uh nice. in like this character exists in this universe. Um so I like I'm kind of hoping that just means we're going to have multiple Spider-Men because I do really like uh our Peter Parker, but like yeah. if our as long as our Peter Parker, if our Peter Parker has to die, I hope they just don't that he doesn't die for like the emotional motivation of another character and no other reason. But we'll see. Yeah, no, I think that would be pretty awesome. Um, 
I will also say, I, I wanted to kind of tell this story quickly because I only learned this recently and, and some of our listeners may know this already, but I think it's, it's really wonderful to, to, to hear this because it's, it's a reminder that the conversations that are happening, um, have value and mean something. Um, because the, the story, at least that I understand about how the Miles Morales character came to be, and this is told by Mark Bernardin, who is a black writer and, um, commentator about comic books and things like this. He was very involved in the, the Stephen King Castle Rock project, and he is Kevin Smith's proj- uh, partner for what used to be the Fat Man on Batman podcast and now is Fat Man Beyond. Um, but the story that he tells is that, um, uh, whatever it was, 10 or 12 years ago, when they were casting who would eventually become Andrew Garfield for that, you know, set of Spider-Man movies, he wrote an article saying, why can't there be a black Spider-Man? And actually, he, you know, why can't there be a black person cast as Peter Parker? And he got apparently a, a huge amount of hate mail, and it became a big thing, and um, really kind of a, it was kind of like the, the, the Ghostbusters, you know, um, well, all the, the 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 crap that went ha- that happened around that, and and um, the the black woman who was involved in Ghostbusters being so badly harassed, it was kind of that that a, a version of that playing out about ten twelve years ago. But that what eventually happened was as part of that, it got a lot of media attention, and that uh, the writer, I believe, uh, Brian Bendis, Brian Michael Bendis, and although again I'm not positive on that, but that a, a writer reached out to Mark Bernard and said, "Hey, I, I really think your idea here is kind of cool. Are do you, are you okay if I run with this and try to explore what would mm-hmm. a person of color who was a uh, Spider-Man look like?" And and Mark Bernard said, "Sure," and that that's where the character of Miles Morales came from. Um, and and again, that that's the story as as told by Mark Bernardin on a podcast on which both him and Kevin Smith smoke a lot of pot. Um, so, so it's uh, more of a podcast, is what yeah, exactly, saying. exactly. So so take all the details with with a grain of salt there, but I I believe that is actually the case, and I think it's it's a great example of how you know it, it can see. I I know people get annoyed by it. I and I I think that's wrong because I think this is an important part of this whole media. But but that when people are raising those questions and saying why can't we have a woman you know uh, or, or as we just we're going to get a woman Thor now which is great we've had a woman Thor in comic books for a while we're now going to have Lady Thor in in the movies you know that 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 these questions when people ask like why can't we have a gay superhero why can't we have this why can't we have that that those lead to really good things at least sometimes so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, we are going to have a conversation at some point about. Uh fan reaction thus far to Lady Thor almost assuredly. Yep. Um, both the casting decision and the storytelling decision, because I think they both have slightly different plot threads, if you will, surrounding yeah. them. But, uh, yeah. I'll, uh, a quick aside on that, I'll just say I have been so disappointed by how the movies had used Natalie Portman, who's such a great actor, actress, actor, um, and so I'm really excited for that. Um, I don't understand why they put her in the role of a scientist and then didn't write a good scientist character. Like, oh, the... Why, 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 why? Natalie yeah. Portman is fantastic as an actress. Why would you do that? Anyway, moving on. So yeah, back to back to Spider-Verse. Let's talk about some of the questions from the movie itself. Um, you know, as anyone who's listened to this pot, I imagine if you did a word cloud of characters, um, Daredevil might be the first of this particular podcast, but the person who might be number one and certainly would be number two is Kingpin. Um, and here... You and I have talked at length about how much we love the Vincent D'Onofrio Kingpin. Here we get a very different portrayal of Kingpin. Uh, what did you think? Well, first of all, uh, his his character as animated is unsettling. 
<laughs> he is literal no neck. Uh, so so there's that. Um, a, a head emerging horizontally out of a pair of shoulders. Yep, out of a pair of shoulders, and is almost entirely torso with two little legs. Um, yeah. so very stark caricature. Um, obviously this is a very and a very different kind of character from Vincent D'Onofrio. The the main uh similarity is is that they both have anger issues, right? Um, and the 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 thing in particular that I enjoyed, appreciated about this Kingpin was that his motivation, while selfish, wasn't completely uh, unrelatable, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think it makes sense, especially given that, as we were just talking, the, the whole assumption that people from different universes with the same name and look are going to be anything like each other is ludicrous. Uh, and yet his whole goal is to try to get his uh, get his family back. Um, and the fact that he blames... But, but it's a very human thing, right? He blames Spider-Man uh, for something that Spider-Man actually didn't have anything to do with. It, it was all his fault, uh, right? The whole problem right. was that... Yeah, the whole problem was Kingpin was doing Kingpin things, and his family left uh, because... Yeah, they wanted out of that situation. Vanessa wanted out of that situation, and um, there was a kid, right? I'm not misremembering this. Yeah, yeah, yep. that was it. Was it was, that, it was the idea that he had kind of scared away his family in the yep. past by them seeing his violence. Yep, yep. Uh, but you know, blame Spider-Man because uh, to blame himself would be to acknowledge that he has to work on himself, and like you can't do that <laughs> as a man. Uh, I I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I... <laughs> I, I, <clears throat> at first it threw me. He didn't look the same. He didn't sound the same. And at first I thought he 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 came off much more mustache twirly, much more comic book villain, um, especially the way he was drawn. Um, but what I realized by by that midway through is how much you, you're right. His his idea doesn't make sense and isn't necessarily like. It's not like a Killmonger or a Magneto where I'm like maybe you have a point. Like he's clearly like this is not a good idea. Um, but I can at least be sympathetic, you know, I can understand where he's coming from. And it's, you know, one thing we've talked about when we talk about the nature of villains is the idea that kind of like, you, you know, the, vil- the, the villain's fatal flaw that is the thing that winds up being their undoing. And in the case of Kingpin, it's always been, at least in the comics, they haven't played with this quite as much in the show, but it's there somewhat you know, that his anger he doesn't have control of. That, and, of course, actually they play with a lot in the show. Um, but that he can lose control of his anger and 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 he, in, he has this image of himself as a helper and a protector, but that other people see him as scary because of the way he loses control of his anger. Mm-hmm. And they did it so quickly and with barely any dialogue, but this movie established that so well. And I was just like, this is such an interesting side of Kingpin that... The TV show shows us somewhat, but the movie is getting at so much more, and that it's that horrible cycle he's in, where he he showed his anger without meaning to, and it scared away the people he loves, and now in his attempt to fix what happened because he showed his anger, all of his anger is coming out once again. Right, that's an excellent point. Um, 
I don't have a springboard <laughs> off of it, so... Uh, Sorry, that's my fault. I just kind of, like, went on... No, I, no, uh, like, it's... It, I can't springboard off of it because you said everything that I, I wanted to say <laughs> and some other things that were very valuable and, and very cool that you said. So, like, bravo. Thank you. Um, and I also, like... So, sort of, the way he ends up interacting with the cast of heroes, uh, and he sort of just keeps doubling down on this, right? Um is is fascinating to me uh i sort of like this is my uh my hope in almost every movie is i really want to have the argument scene between a villain and, and a hero i really want them to like talk through why what the villain's doing doesn't make sense or isn't right and uh-huh. i don't always get that and here if like we're talking about hey if you do this you know we're gonna you know, you're gonna collapse the whole world or something or whatever the Whatever the wubba wubba that he was doing was actually going to do to to right right to to destroy the world or change life forever, um, and you don't have a right to do it. But never got to talk about like his central motivation. Like I, one of the things I wanted uh, or I, re- I would really love to see was somebody saying, "This won't change anything. This doesn't bring her back. Right? This right. is this is somebody else entirely that you're taking away." Uh, from someone like you, if if you believe that they're like her, and... and and you did get just the slightest hint of that in that, you know, they come back and they see him being just as angry and they run away again. And I yeah, I don't remember the graphic of it, but I feel like that frame was almost exactly like the frame from his memory. Yes, but you're right; it would have been nice to have that discussed more. Right, or just have, like, it doesn't need to be like a, you know, they sit down and have coffee and debate, right? It just needs to be an exchange where it's like, why are you doing this? I want my family back. They're not going to be your family. Who are you right. taking them away from, right? And, like, you know, maybe he, like, has a moment where he, like, considers, is it right for him to do this and, and potentially make another kingpin go through the same stuff he's doing, he's going through now, but then ultimately decides to do it because villains decide to yeah. make bad choices, right? But, like, I just – that would have been interesting. The movie was still great without it, right? It didn't yeah. need that. Um, I just would have liked it. it. It is an interesting point, especially because there's something a little bit weirdly asymmetrical about how it lines up because on some – you know, as you say, there, there's an interesting tension that happens when our villain has a goal, but the goal – isn't necessarily the best thing, or that in some ways the hero is like, no, you shouldn't have that goal. In this case, the problem has nothing to do with his goal. It's 100% his methods, you know? And yep. I feel like there's never anything of like, the, it's, it's, I think part of the idea is that he is so single-mindedly focused on that goal that he's not willing to look at the danger that it's going to put everybody in. Right. But, but on some level, they don't care what his goal is. They care that he's using this method that will not only not get his goal, it will destroy everything else. Yep. And, like, there wasn't really time in the movie for that kind of discussion, but I would have liked our heroes to learn why he was doing this and then challenge him on it. Yeah. Um, Just because, again, I like it when people use their words and then use their punches when their words don't work. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That that, that would have been nice. And I I will also say, I liked the idea of him scaring off his family. Again, this is the only thing where I'm going to bring in the the Netflix universe as the more positive. Um, 
I so love the portrayal of the character of Veronica or Vanessa Vanessa. in the Mm -hmm. Netflix show as the one who sees his anger, sees the depths of his rage and his his hate and his violence and loves him for it Mm -hmm. and even kind of gets into it somewhat. And so I was a little sad to kind of go back to her as the kind of like, oh, no, I can't believe you're this terrible person. But but other than that, you're right. There was so much that was so good about it that I was totally down for it. Well, right. And here again, we're we're positing in different universes, different finesses would react differently to yeah. big, bad, angry kingpin. Um, That's that would have been true. an interesting different take if he ended up like pulling through the Vanessa that's effectively the Netflix Vanessa. And he's oh, yeah. all like, but you're nothing like the woman I fell in love with. Yeah. And I would just be sitting there screaming at the street, no kidding, you idiot. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> just... Well, and, and also, and again, this, this may be more of a, a meta point, but it, it, it gets into another interesting ethical question about sort of just the way these shows are being made. Because I, just when you're talking about pulling through different universes, I, I love the idea, as you said, that Miles Morales can now be in the universe. But I think part of why you'll probably never in a million years get Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin in the same room with with Tom Holland's Spider-Man is because one comes from an R-rated universe and the other comes from a PG-13 rated universe. Hmm. And I, I wish that wasn't the world we live in, but it kind of is. And it I, I feel like all of this raises some interesting questions about – you know how how do you how do you tell stories about characters that are all fundamentally interrelated and interconnected when the context in which you can tell those stories and the kind of things you can get away with in some but not in others is radically different yeah it's it's tough because and it is something the netflix or netflix the uh the mcu has been has been struggling with and apparently just decided to go eh we're going to start we're going to scrap a bunch of this and and cut all of our connections and now shield is not connected to the main line anymore and it's like yeah because you're right when you it's, it's an excellent point when you have these different levels of storytelling these different types of storytelling and you have characters from one that when you bring them into the other they have to play in that space they have to be a character that can exist in that arena mm-hmm. um you don't have a context to bring your audience along with, right? Like, even if you took if you took uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man and had him try to interact with Netflix Punisher, right? Oh, I God. think that's I think that scene would be amazing, right? But uh, one of them sort of has to conform to the other one's universe in order for it to make any sense to the audience, and then it's going to be jarring for the other character, right? Well, and it, it's something you and I have talked about a lot, and I think it's it's. As much as we joke about how much we like the Netflix shows, part of it is that I think that as as you change, like, you know, literal ratings, but also just tones of movies, one of the first things that changes is how much moral grayness are you allowed? You know, you and I have talked about, like, Luke Cage and Daredevil and characters like that go through all kinds of moral wrangling about the the damage that they may do to, you know, the nameless henchmen they're fighting that Captain America and Thor never questioned for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and that alone, I feel like the Punisher asks questions that Tom Holland which would never occur to him. Um, not that it wouldn't care to the character or the actor, but just that it, it's a very different framework. Um, and, and it makes these fun questions, but also I think highlights the idea that, like, to some extent, these different movies and TV shows are taking place in different ethical frameworks where different kind of questions are allowed. 
Yeah, it's almost like there is a uh, an actual framework for each of them that they plug characters into, and then I don't know. It's there's some AI that's controlling a bunch of the different ones, and it's yeah. probably a villain because all AIs are villains. <laughs> Just. You know, just throwing that out there as an idea that they could do. Uh, you know, would probably be bad. I think, I mean, I think many people at this point would argue that Kevin Feige is basically an AI. And he's, <laughs> he's just in control of everything. But either way, it plays out kind of the same. Sure. Um, but it would it would actually be an interesting thing to me to, like, you know, because back in the day, they would set rules for that kind of thing. It would be like, you know, Batman can never kill anybody. Superman can never question, you know, the authority of political leaders. Like, there were all of these rules in place for characters and for the in these kind of different stories you could tell. And I, I, I am curious if, we, if, if this exists, we will probably never know about it, but I would love it if one day, like Kevin Feige or someone else wrote like a tell all, you know, behind the scenes memoir of the making of the MCU. And we found out that like, here were the specific rules that were established for the MCU movies. And here was these specific rules established for animation. And here are the specific rules established for the Netflix shows of like, what kind of moral grayness could you show on one, but not the other. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, you and I, of course, both really love, uh, mo- for the most part, the Netflix shows because the nuance is interesting and, and the heroes feel more real. Um, right. I also love the big blockbuster movies and love this movie, but they're different, right? They're, they're, yeah. They present different problems. Uh, and because of that, this Kingpin makes way more sense in this than than this Kingpin would in, in Netflix Daredevil or Netflix Daredevil's Devil's Kingpin would in here. Because this is the villain that this set of spider peoples needs, right? right. They need someone that... Um, well, first of all, they need the MacGuffin that actually gets them all in the same room together. Um, but then they also need someone who's not going to listen to the, hey, you really shouldn't do this. Uh, and that I, I really did appreciate that his motivation wasn't just, well, I'm going to do this because, I don't know, power or something. Like some generic, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Some, yeah, of course. Some generic, like... Disney villain level, like I want, I, I'm Jafar. I want all of the power so I can stick it in my ears and stick my tongue out in people and say I have all the power. Right. Um, I don't know if that's 100% Jafar's motivation. Uh, it sounds more like Scar's motivation when I'm thinking about <laughs> it. But anyway, we should do a podcast on Disney villains. Um, oh, especially now that I've just seen Hercules and liked it, I'm 100% there. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But um, um. Because if we can spend at least five minutes talking about the massive amounts of violence that movie does to Greek mythology, um, but <laughs> much as now I like the movie, but but no, I I think that you make a really good point there about kind of the, especially because actually one one thing I think that this kingpin does highlight in a way that the movie well the TV show doesn't because it's not about Spider Man it's about Daredevil but is you know Spider Man is not a wimp he's not pre serum um, Steve Rogers but he is definitely not. Captain America. You know, he is not big and strong. He is quick and wiry and agile, and he has spider strength, but he's not, you know, built by any means. And I, my understanding is, especially when Kingpin was a Spider-Man villain, that part of why he was there was to really highlight that difference, because Dinoff, you know, Kingpin is everything that um, Spider-Man is not. You know, he's this just big, huge, hulking 
mass of strength and 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 it's the exact opposite of what Peter represents. And I like that this movie highlighted that a little more. Um one other quick uh thing I'll hit on villains, then maybe we can actually uh, wrap this up, make this kind of a shorter episode. Um mm-hmm. but is um Doc Ock. Mm. Because you mentioned that the Doc Ock reveal where we find out that this this woman doctor um uh scientist has been is Doc Ock. I thought was so well done. Um, and in particular, what I liked about her so much is that, um, so a, a couple of months ago at WISCON, I was at a presentation about Shira, Princess of Power, the new great TV show. And I talked about how there was one character who was not evil. She was not immoral. She was just amoral. Like she would get so wrapped up in the science that she would kind of just forget to care about the morality of what she was doing. And, Doc Ock obviously has a little bit of enjoying being evil, but mostly that was the sense I got from her, was she was never, like, she was working for, for Wilson Fisk, for Kingpin, because he gave her the chance to play with this awesome science. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to to stop Peter Parker from getting in her way, and when she realized he was, like, from a different dimension, she wanted to experiment on him, and she certainly didn't care about the moral implications, but she didn't seem evil to me. She just seemed fundamentally amoral. Um, did you get that same sense from her? So similar. Uh, there is a un- unfortunate trope with uh, scientists, particularly villain scientists, where you have this. There's this idea that like once your scientific curiosity gets to a certain point, uh, you just throw morality by the wayside. So I didn't really appreciate that because I don't think logic and um, and uh, a sense of judgment, a sense of connectivity to other human beings are mutually exclusive the way a lot of stories want us to think they are. Um, just in the same – it's that same kind of – I think we've talked about this before, the, the idea that if you're extremely logical, you won't be emotional or you won't – experience emotions in the same way and vice versa is kind of right there's two things mutually exclusive yeah that's not how brains work generally (laughs) um certainly there are um there are some um people who have uh different they they don't process emotion the same way as you or i um but like it it's not this because it's not because they're hyper logical and that's all they are like it isn't like there's no like literal vulcan so i didn't like that as much i'm so i agree with you that like i feel like that was part of the portrayal that like she was so interested in what could be done and what the Mm -hmm. possibilities were in sort of manipulating the world around her uh through the application of her intellect that the consequences to the other individuals around her were not even a secondary concern Right. Uh, which is, yeah, kind of more of an amoral thing. Not like intentionally causing harm, but not really caring about what harm would be caused. Um, but what I did like was how clever uh, this Doc Ock was. Uh, in particular, playing uh, Spider-Man in, like, uh, appearing to be this, like, you know, hapless helper scientist and, you know, having a conversation. And then, again, when we, when we get that reveal, I'm like, oh... Oh, she knew all along, and like the there was a a power dynamic there that was only understood by one character, and I love that the character that understood it was her. Yeah, uh, that if was that a makes great sense. thing. Yeah, um, I I guess this it, I I hear what you're saying about that that trope. This felt a little different to me because it felt more about like her as a person and her personality rather than just I'm super scientist, so I don't care anymore. Um, but I think that, that for our listeners, I'd be curious to hear other thoughts on that because I can, I can, I, I can see it going either way. 
Um, and I, I, I do agree with you. I loved that she, how much she outsmarted everyone, you know, and that she was often three or four steps ahead of our heroes in such interesting ways. Yeah. And it's something that, uh, it's difficult to, to write and portray in film, uh, when you have a villain who's supposed to be, you know, n steps ahead and just so much cleverer than our heroes, uh, because they still have to win. Uh, so at some point you have to break that. Um, but I think they did a good job there as well, where like basically the entire villainous plan got executed to fruition and they had to continue to adapt and adapt and adapt until finally, uh, the solution came because of something that, uh, the villains were unable to expect. Right. Right. Uh, Miles being the the rogue element, the element that uh, nobody anticipated because he found himself, he found his power and embraced it and was able to to use it to uh, enact positive change in the world. Also, very uh, <laughs> a story that hits home for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even just the way that, that Doc Ock is defeated, you know, I mean, she... One thing I loved about her is that she was so witty. You know, she was constant. Mm-hmm. She was almost as much as Peter Parker normally is, if not more so. She always had the quick joke, the quick comment about how much of an idiot somebody else was. And I loved that about her. And in some ways, it sort of felt like I, for any of the heroes to just flat out defeat her, like I didn't know who would be able to do it. And for her to just flat out get hit by a bus created by this weird situation that she had created like i i i was like okay that that's it's a little um you know uh what's the word for on what'd you say slapstick it's a little slapstick and it's a little uh, anticlimactic but it also felt very appropriate because it's partially like it's the scientist who thinks they can control everything, and part of it's that everything's out of control, but partially it's also that none of them actually defeated her. She just kind of got defeated by the craziness of the situation that she helped create. I um, agree. The, the fact that the thing that defeated her was literally dramatic irony uh, yeah. <laughs> played really well. Definitely. Um, so I think that's about all the things I wanted to cover with, with, with this movie. What, what, um, what, 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 was, was there any other last points you wanted to hit? Uh. Actually, no. Like, uh, I really liked the movie. Could talk about it for longer. Could talk about uh, Nicolas Cage going full Cage, as it were. Oh, God, um, yeah. Because that is a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a lot of fun elements in the movie. Uh, the the um, Aunt May in this film sort of, you know, welcoming everyone into her home. And, like, ha- there was a lot of amazing uh, moments in this movie. But in terms of the material for this broader discussion, I think we're about ready to wrap up. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I'll say one thing on the Nicholas Cage, part, no, I'm sorry, not on Nicholas Cage, but um, um, on the um, alternate universe, Peter Parker, um, which is that when we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago about um, Avengers Endgame, we had a long conversation about Thor in the fat suit and how problematic that felt. And how there was some value to it that I saw, but that we both thought it was pretty problematic in some ways. Um, And I wanted to ask how you felt about what they did with Peter Parker, the older Peter Parker in this. Because I felt like this was, you know, there was a couple of people who sort of pointed out the fact that he gained some weight. They made a little bit of a joke about that. But for the most part, it was just such an interesting exploration of what happens to a person who feels like they can take care of everything. Now they can't. And has somewhat gone to seed, and I just I felt his character was so relatable and so so heartbreaking in some ways. Um, what what was your take on on that that version of the character? So I had seen uh, 
Into the Spider-Verse, I want to say I saw it before Endgame. Um, I'm, now I'm trying to remember the timeline, but I did notice the similarity that uh, you're sort of... I think you're hinting at it, but um, you have two characters who've gone through some pretty substantial depression. Um, and our shortcut for... One of the shortcuts we use uh, in these films for that is to have them put on weight. Right? Yeah. Um, and then... It's realistic, right? I think. I think that's yeah. like not unreasonable. That that that's a thing, right? Uh, some people eat their feelings. I certainly eat my feelings, um, and drink my feelings, and uh, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise yep, ingest my feelings. Uh, I'm with you on the eating the feelings. Yep. But uh, it when it is, it would have been better if it were just a you know this happened. And to not have any characters comment on it at all. But nice. I do think that it was less egregious is the wrong word. Because I don't think it was, like, egregious per se in Endgame. But there was conversations that could be had about, like, you know, whether or not... It was not... much more of a running joke, it felt like. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, I, mean, just I was about to make that, a like... very bad joke. So I'm glad that I didn't. Uh, so <laughs> We were talking before about how... This felt very cartoonish. Like the Thor, the Thor fat suit felt much more of a cartoonish portrayal of weight gain. Whereas this felt like a guy who still looked like he was in decent shape. He had just put around, right. put put on some pounds around the waist. Yeah, he just he got well. He you know hadn't been as active and had been eating more junk food, right? Mm-hmm. And like that, that's what happens. Like no, no, no. Um, yeah. and like generally speaking, nobody was. It wasn't. It wasn't this constant. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of of scenes where his weight played an important role, right, in the outcome of the scene. And that was. It it could have been handled better, but it was definitely handled better. I feel than uh, than uh, Thor, who had gained a little bit of weight in Endgame. Yeah, I think that's true. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's let's uh, wrap it up. Um. Thank you for uh, thank you guys all for listening. Uh, as always, Jacob and I have thrown out some thoughts about this. We want to hear what you guys think. You can email us or find us on Facebook. We have both a page and a group. The group especially is a great way to join to uh, um, post questions or thoughts or comments. Um, and only you do have to join it, but that's very easy. Uh, if you don't want to do that, all you have to do is comment on the page. You can also tweet at us or find us on email. All of those things are just superhero ethics in the email at superheroethics at gmail.com. Um, we love your feedback. We'll definitely take your feedback and hopefully get to discuss it uh, on, on an upcoming episode. Um, uh, beyond that, you can also find other ways to reach us. I am Caped Ethicist on Twitter. Um, Jacob? I am bots R. that's the letter R, people too. Yep, and all that will be in the show notes. Um, other things you can do if you want to help support the podcast, um, best things you can do is just, you know, talk back to us, help continue the conversation, and get your friends talking about this. Um, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners, you are listening, you have been talking to friends about Into the Spider-Verse, you want to hear about it. Uh, share this podcast with your friends. We would love to get our, our listener norms up, have more people hearing it and um, uh, uh, talking about it and interacting with us. Um, if you want to find other ways to support the podcast, we have our Patreon. Again, it's Superhero Ethics at Patreon. And that's a great way to, um, you can give a little, uh, uh, donation to the podcast, help support us in terms of our recording costs and sounds like that. 
uh, and, and things like that. You can also um, buy some of our t-shirts or mouse pads or other swag, again, on a link that's going to be on the um, uh, on the web page for this podcast in the show notes. So, uh, Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone else. Um, thank you for your patience. Um, we are recording this in mid-July. It's going to be coming out a little bit later than that. We still have a Harry Potter episode, uh, which I have not yet gotten to edit yet, because, again, with moving, um, summer train timing has been a little crazy, but hopefully by the time you're hearing this, we're going to be back on schedule and recording on a regular basis. So thank you guys all. Have a good night. <laughs>